Well, welcome to episode 122. It is our first post-election 22 podcast, The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson. The Duracell Bunny Professor, Peter Van Onselen, joins me. <laughs> if that's the case, I'm, I'm almost out of battery. The juice is running out, yeah. <laughs> but so much to discuss. Where do we start? Give us your overview. Well, look, Labor looks uh, at the time that we're doing this like they will get their majority only just, you know, on, on my read of it. At the moment, they're officially, according to the Electoral Commission, short of their 76 seats with ones that are still in doubt. But I see them picking up Benelong as the seat that takes them to 76. I just think that the Liberal candidate is now too far behind. That matches, of course, a Hugh polling that we had at 10 News that showed that Benelong was flipping in the other direction. A lot of predictions that it would get tighter than that polling had it, which it clearly has, but it has still flipped as a seat. That would give Labor 76. There's a chance that Labor picks up Brisbane over the Greens, but they're behind at the moment because one of the unique facets of that is Trevor Evans, the Liberal MP, looks like losing either way. But if, if at the moment the Greens are above Labor on the preference distribution, if they fall behind them, if the Greens fall behind Labor, that is, then the others' preferences will deliver the seat to whomever is first on the preference count ahead of the Liberal candidate. So my point there is it could become 77 seats, but it doesn't really matter to government. I mean, the point about this is Anthony Albanese, unless something unique happens in Benelong, looks like getting his majority and then therefore getting to pick his speaker and continue to control the parliament. But he would be doing that anyway, because there are a number of Greens one way or the other. Now there's, there's Andrew Wilkie re-elected. Then there's all the existing independents re-elected as well now as this gaggle of teal independents. You know, they, they all won, essentially. All the ones with a profile won, all six of them. Right around the country, in Melbourne, Sydney, and, and even over in the electorate of Curtin, Julie Bishop's old seat. So uh, the Teal independents have barnstormed their way into parliament, but they won't be part of a Labor government in any sense. They will be a presence in the parliament. I actually think that's worse for the Liberal Party as an outcome, electorally speaking and politically speaking, because they can't be accused of backing a Labor government, which might have been used as a wedge tactic against them by an incoming Peter Dutton. Liberal leader, assuming that's the case, and it seems to be a fait accompli. So they, they can therefore be critics on the right of the Liberal Party if it isn't moderate enough on particular issues, if it doesn't go far enough on climate change, if there are people in its ranks, large numbers in its ranks, who won't support the voice to parliament, if they don't do enough to fix their problem with women, both in a policy construct sense, but also internally in terms of getting them into parliament. And all of that can manifest itself that in three years' time, they can't be attacked for all the things that Windsor and Oakshot were attacked for uh, subsequently, but they can carve themselves out a niche as modern liberal women who are independent when the party has lost its way in these key seats. And that's a huge problem, I think, for the right of politics, because it was already copying a shtick on its right flank from the sort of United Australia Party and One Nation and the Nationals, frankly, as the coalition partner. Sure. Well, I, I, want to, I want to talk about the Nationals and, and what happens in the right. Mm. But I, I just wonder, we've already heard from Anthony Albanese that he's not shifting on the climate policy and the goals and the targets that they brought into this election on emissions. So had there been a crossbench that he had to get across the line, particularly if there were Greens and some Teals, that would force government policy to shift right there, probably. But now they can run their own race a little bit more, although, of course, the Senate is another factor to put in there. So to what degree will the Labor government, the Albanese government, now be able to own its agenda? Well, I think to a large degree, the Senate, I, I think, is a complication which we probably need to talk about 
beyond their ability to control their the political agenda in the lower house, whether they can transition it into policy in the upper house. But I think that what you're talking about is, is really interesting because it means that in the lower house, the teal independents can be critical of Labor for, for example, not pursuing enough economic reform to satisfy people in those sort of seats. But it can also say, look, Labor also isn't doing enough on climate change without the sort of potential economic effects, if there are negative economic effects, that doing that could also have simultaneously. They can have their cake and eat it, Hugh, I guess is my point. And, and I think that they can really establish themselves as a strong niche. The Senate for the Labor government is an interesting complication. The Greens will pick up a number of seats there. We're still going to have to wait for a while to see exactly where things like the sixth spot in Queensland falls and, and the sixth spot in Victoria. But it looks on the early numbers like Labor and Greens combined will still need one, possibly two senators to back them in to pass legislation. Maybe that's a Jackie Lambie coming in, depending on the issue. Maybe it's someone else. Now, that, that's an interesting point, both in terms of policy. Do the Greens have the capacity there to all but stifle the agenda of Labor, whatever that agenda might be? You know, Kevin Rudd famously had his emissions, uh, his ETS stifled by the Greens because they didn't think it went far enough at the same time as copying it on his right flank from Tony Abbott eventually for saying that it was too risky. So they could stifle. But equally, if they don't stifle, if they facilitate a Labor passage of legislation that they're okay with, do Labor negotiate with them and make adjustments to that policy so that the Greens are satisfied with it and then risk the wrath of the Liberals in opposition and the Nationals in opposition accusing Labor of being, quote unquote, in bed with the Greens and all the dynamic that that can entail? I think Albo will be on to that and won't want that. But then the consequence might therefore be if the Greens aren't bluffing, that their agenda just gets bogged down and stifled if the Liberal Party decide to play oppositionist tendencies in the Senate, which I think they will. You know, if Peter Dutton's leader, I think they will. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the teal seats, everyone got leafleted like fury with warnings that if you vote for independence, you get chaos. Hmm. And I kind of feel there's a perverse incentive for whoever leads the Liberal Party. I'm very confident it'll be Peter Dutton to deliver on chaos. Because if this goes smoothly, relatively smoothly, and everyone is kind of kumbaya in the new parliament, uh, which is what some people say that the Liberal Party should now do, not move to the right, not look like wreckers, that works very much for Labour. The crude political calculation is the Liberal Party promised there would be chaos if the independents got up. So chaos must be delivered by the Liberal Party, in a sense, or every single error, every mistake, every misstep, every hint of a broken promise is going to be leapt on by Peter Dutton. Wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, I mean, I think he'd be doing that anyway, wouldn't he? That's just his, his style. He, um, he's adversarial. He's an old school adversarial politician and probably with a little bit of extra juice thrown in to that adversarial approach compared to a Morrison. But isn't that just what's been rejected? I think so, yeah. Old school adversarial males? Yeah, but Hugh, you could argue that that's what was rejected in the way that the parliament constructed itself after 2010. And in actuality, I thought the parliament functioned very effectively after 2010. It's just that Tony Abbott managed to deliver the impression that you're talking about that Peter Dutton will look to do the same when it comes to chaos. And it electorally worked at the end of three years. Now, there were various factors that fed into that. And we can't uh, ignore that either. This Labor government hasn't promised to do a lot. If it tries to do a lot, it can be accused of breaking its promise because it didn't take it to the election. And that's always the biggest challenge for an incoming government. I've been critical ever since John Howard's government, which tried to do a lot early on and managed to survive. 
you know, Rudd tried to do a reasonable amount early on and was accused of, you know, if you like, failing to do so, uh, you know, squibbing it and not having the double dissolution. Gillard promised not to do certain things and then did them, and we can debate exactly what was promised, but the carbon tax is at the heart of that. Tony Abbott certainly fell into that category because he ruled out doing anything in that SBS interview on the eve of the election and then proceeded to try to have a pretty hard first budget. So Anthony Albanese will now be faced with a situation. Does he simply aim to be a low flyer and implement his small target strategy, or does he try to actually beef it up a little bit and risk being accused of breaking promises and not being true to the Australian people. And all of this comes in what is going to be, in my view, the next three years, the toughest economic climate that people have seen for a very long time. And some people won't have ever seen it, young Australians, because they, you know, what happened in the late 80s, early 90s will be a very distant memory, if not predating their own arrival at the scene. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, sure. Although, I mean, there's a memory of the pandemic, but that was dealt with by spending money which we can't necessarily do again you know the gfc can't do much more of that what do you think about that hugh what do you think happens in that context because no doubt labor will keep spending to some extent probably spend a little bit more than the liberals at least promised they were going to do and the economy is a problem anyway right with rising interest rates and inflation we might lose that triple a credit rating as a consequence of all of this yeah and that that would be a gift to dutton none of which is labor's fault but what do you think happens politically because dutton will despite the last six years you would or nine years you would think he will charge right in there and accuse them of being economic wreckers will that fly well jim chalmers is already saying today that it will take quote generations to pay off the debt racked up by the liberal party he's trying to give himself room to look at the national books in the coming years. And if they're, you know, if they're not improving on the bottom line, he can say, well, you know, I've warned you right from the start. It'll take generations to, to get rid of this. But then he has promised to spend more money than the coalition did. And so deeper debts are what we can expect, you know, from here on in. This seems to be that the, all the fiscal conservatives have, have gone out the window. I do think that Albanese has come in with a reasonably low-level policy, certainly compared with Shorten and, uh, three years ago. Mm. But there's still quite a lot to do this year, for example. There's a budget to knock out in October. There is going to be promises that they're going to match, like getting this voice to parliament is going to get underway with that. There'll be a referendum on that. There'll be a lot of talk about it. Already some liberal moderates saying they'll support that. So that's constitutional change. It's got to go back to the people. There'll also be those symbolic things they want to knock off. The Biloela family, for example, going back to Biloela. So there's going to be stuff which indicates a busyness. There's going to be their position on recommending a minimum wage rise in line with inflation. And I don't think we're going to see in the course of this year a sense that the government isn't doing anything. I agree with that. Whether the longer term beyond that you know, is another matter. But what I think will be interesting is Anthony, so Anthony Albanese was an unreconstructed lefty upon his arrival in the political scene before arriving in parliament. And he was an adult version of the same as a new entrant to Parliament in 1996. You know, he was the most senior factional player in New South Wales before entering Parliament as the Assistant State Secretary of the Labor Party as the left-wing person, because the right always gets the State Secretary role. Then when he went into Parliament in 96, he soon became one of the leading left-wing figures. And he was, in a sense, the leader of the left when Kevin Rudd got elected Prime Minister in 2007. Now, the reason that I raise all of that is because it's to lead to both a compliment and an interesting thing to watch about Albo. I think that as his modernization process and as his realization of potential leadership within himself has developed over the years, 
he has realized that he had to jettison one half of his ideological, you know, raison d'etre. And that was the kind of economic reconstructed lefty. So he, whether he likes it or not, on the economy, he has to accept that the Hawke and Keating government modernized it, Howard modernized it further, Labor has embraced much of that, if not all of it, but he certainly can't have warring battles with Tories on that front, okay? And he, I think, has just learned to accept that. He's got an economics degree. He understands it. He did oppose a lot of the Hawke reforms as a young man, but he's now come to accept that that's the modern globalized world we live in. And I think he has accepted that. The other half of him, though, this is the interesting part for me. The other half is social justice lefty elbow. And that is very much something that he wants to bring to this prime ministership. You know, it's where he started with his acceptance speech, with his campaign launch speech, with his national press club speech, the voice to parliament, the view that he wants all Australians, which where he tells his personal story to feel like they can rise to any rank in this country. Uh, in that sense, he will try where he can in expenditure review committee meetings and budget preparations to think about people in a low socioeconomic setting like what he understood growing up. But he won't look to radicalise the system, but he will have huge social justice instincts on gender, on ethnicity, on access to resources of government for people who are aged or disabled. That social justice raison d'etre is what I believe when we look back at the Albanese prime ministership, however long or short it is, will be what defines him. And I think what could make that a success, Hugh, is that I think that fits with the culture of Australia and what we like to see ourselves as, as egalitarian society, one that we haven't always lived up to for a long time, frankly. I think it will fit with that as long as he doesn't then, another F word which we won't use, mess with the economic settings of the modern nation, other than to care about people that he doesn't want to be left behind. Could be a really good prime ministership if he does that. That seems to be what voters are looking for, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I look, and, and this comes back to a discussion which I think he can kick the can down the road of this, but we won't be able to do that forever. He can kick down the road the can, which is the debate we have to have about what kind of government and society we want and what that means for how much tax we need to collect to achieve it. Because he can get away with, in the course of six years, not having that discussion, but we can't get away with that for 16 years. I don't think. So at some point, government is going to, and the sides of politics are going to have to have a serious debate about, look, we want to adequately look after people in aged care. We want to look after the disabled adequately. We want to have all these services, X, Y, and Z, that make us the society that is different from America, for example, or the UK with its class-based system. We want all of that. But to have it sustainably into the future, we can't keep putting it on the national credit card. We have to accept that it costs money. I'm a high income earner. My family is a high income earning family. I'm prepared to pay more tax for that kind of society, but maybe not everyone is. And at the moment, the political debate gets bogged down in being about lower tax to GDP. I mean, that was even part of the release of Labor's costings with Katie Gallagher talking about it and Jim Chalmers talking about it. At some point, that discussion has to be had because it's unsustainable to do both, to be a low taxing nation and a high caring nation as a government. But I don't think Albo will have to face up to that. I think that will be the following generation after his. He can kick that can down the road, but he'll be criticised, Hugh, for kicking that can down the road. That will be part of the political debate brought on by the Liberals, you would think. And my guess is the number of tax accountants uh, doing very well trying to find ways to reduce people's tax suggests that uh, not every well-off Australian is as generous of you as you are, Peter. <laughs> I suspect that's right.
You're listening to uh, The Professor and the Hack, episode 122, the wash-up of the election. Let's go now to conservative politics. I was really intrigued by this. The Nationals didn't lose lower house seats. And what we saw them do was choke off right-wing populist parties. There was no One Nation seats won. There were no United Australian seats won. Pauline Hanson may have lost her place in the Senate, but she might look like she might hang on. But basically, what the populism of, of Barnaby Joyce has done for the National Party has been to sandbag that party from infiltration from the right. The argument then follows it was utterly destructive in moderate seats in the inner city, and I think there's a lot to be said about that. And Matt Keane, the New South Wales State Treasurer, making the point for those in the Liberal Party, because they are mainly from the right now left there, saying, we shouldn't have drifted so far to the left, that's why we've been killed off. And he said, well, the Liberal Party didn't lose any seats to the right. All of this is saying that the coalition has structured itself basically on the right of the middle, and they've lost the middle. Is that a fair kind of assessment? And if that's the basis, what are the decisions they've got to make? Yeah, I mean, breaking that down is interesting. First up, the Nationals and the Liberals being one party in Queensland makes it slightly complicated what happens if there's a coalition fracturing at the federal level. But in a pure electoral sense, and if you're a National, and there's some talk that you know Barnaby Joyce's leadership might be under pressure because you know he seemed to have been, like Morrison, a contributing factor to the Liberals doing so badly in certain seats. That's what some people are saying. But if you're a National, why would you get rid of Barnaby Joyce? You've just lost, I mean, apart from the fact that what he says can be a bit objectionable, which I could understand, but you're already a national and he's held the line for you. I mean, it's actually a pretty remarkable result, frankly. In 2016, he held the line when Malcolm Turnbull bled seats all around the country. In 2019, the nationals did okay, but you could probably thank Scott Morrison for, for that uplift around the country rather than Michael McCormick at the time. But in 2022, Barnaby Joyce comes back when the nationals were slated to potentially fail in a whole bunch of seats. And he holds the line exactly as you say against right-wing populists on his right flank uh, and doesn't lose a seat anywhere around the country. And in fact, there was a seat that they were looking like they could pick up, but they won't. So, you know, he's done in the context of a wipeout for the Liberals, a wipeout both to Labor and to Teals, so on both flanks in the seats that Labor takes them on, but also in those blue blood seats as well. The Nationals haven't had any of that, right? They haven't lost marginals, one-time marginals, uh, in the fight against the Labor Party, nor have they lost seats against populist independents or minor parties on the right. That's a pretty remarkable result. He should be as safe as houses, and nationals should be looking going, well, we don't really care what your problems are, liberals. We may even be prepared to split from you. What do we care? You know, we did well. You're the disaster zone. We're going to get more nationals in shadow cabinet than we previously would have because we're a higher percentage of the, of the team now. There's a problem, though, and that is that ultimately the National Party wants to be in government, and it can't be in government unless it's in coalition with the Liberal Party. And if the Liberal Party is broken to smithereens by the National Party's positions, they become perpetually a kind of a rump party of, of the bush, essentially shouting a lot. Yes, but they can grow while doing that shouting before they, whenever they return to government. So, see, their danger, the, I find the Nationals fascinating, like they're the only sort of regional-based minor party that forms coalition governments anywhere in the world. You know, they're the last surviving version of this. And they're actually, they don't just survive anymore in modern politics, they actually thrive from time to time as well. There's been so many times in decades gone by where we've predicted and academics have predicted the end of the nationals. They've got the ability with the right kind of populism and leader 
in their communities to thrive and do more than just survive. Now, I don't like it personally. I mean, the, the National Farmers Federation don't support the nationals anymore because they're reconstructing themselves no longer as the party of the farmer, but the party of the miner to some extent, and small town communities as well. A lot of nationals electorates are the poorest in the country, actually. So they're, in, they're a fascinating mix of populism and unreconstructed agrarian socialism at times and mining-based special interests. But boil all of that away, and what you're left with is a party that didn't lose a seat at a wipeout election for the Liberals. Now, Hugh, they need to be careful, even though I think you're right, they want to be back in government at some point and they can cause enormous damage to the Liberals while they have their fight over should they be right or should they be moderate and how do they balance that out. But the Nationals don't want to buy into that and try to be part of a collegial group that can therefore get back into government at the expense of themselves getting decimated on the right flank by a return of the rise of right-wing independents and minor parties that could take them out, because that's an eternal threat for them. So I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the balance is. Summarise like this, my personal view on the Nationals is I would love to see them modernise and do what the New South Wales Nationals to some extent have done as a division within the broader Nationals across the country. But I'm not sure that's going to help them electorally. It's almost like I feel like their best bet is to pursue that type of populism that I find a little bit abhorrent at times, but I think it plays to their communities unless they can find a way to widen their appeal in their communities. And certainly to do that, Hugh, they would need to get rid of Barnaby Joyce. But boy, it's risky. I'm not sure going back to McCormick is that. I'm not sure that Little Proud is that either. I'm not sure Mackenzie is that were she to move into the lower house. Darren Chester probably is that. But is Darren Chester? Darren Chester's got no numbers in the Nationals and he's in Victoria and he would potentially risk them getting wiped out in Queensland. But let me just say this, maybe they go down that path strategically or could go down that path strategically with Peter Dutton as Liberal leader because he can hold the line in Queensland, for example, on behalf of both parties, the way that Morrison did that on behalf of McCormick and the Nationals in 2019. But then Dutton's not helping the Liberal Party, is he? Because he's not getting those teal seats back. They have got themselves a wicked problem. A wicked problem is exactly what was in my mind. And I look at an opposition they've got to sort out their leadership. But if you wind up with the Dutton-Barnaby-Joyce coalition leadership pair, you can kiss goodbye to those teal seats forever, can't you? Yeah, well, look, certainly until that gets shaken up. I mean, Peter Dutton needs women around him. Bridget McKenzie is a, well, she's had some controversies. She's in the Senate rather than the lower house. But, you know, she's by definition a woman and would soften Peter Dutton, even though her views are actually quite, quite right wing. Yes. Jane Hume would soften Peter Dutton. Karen Andrews is a hard minister and politician, but she would also soften him. But she's a fellow Queenslander. They've got so many problems, frankly. Yes, yeah, so Jane, Jane Hume's in the Senate. Bridget McKenzie, every time she gets up, out comes a picture of her exactly right. firing off the, uh, the shotgun and a reminder of the sports rorts and the corruption things that dogged the, <laughs> the Morrison government. So, yeah. Hugh, who becomes shadow treasurer? Who becomes shadow treasurer? I mean, in a sense, it could be tied up to who becomes deputy liberal leader because they get the choice of portfolio and people like Dan Tien and Karen Andrews are circling for that. Well, it's it's not a given, of course, and uh, Judy Bishop is the proof of that, that you, as the deputy, you get to choose your portfolio and traditionally they've chosen the treasury benches, but you don't have to. You know, there's a suggestion, Bridget Archer, the moderate from Tasmania who held on to Bass, who's got obviously views that are more aligned with the centre of Australian politics, might put a hand up, but it's a long leap from... But she, she's, never been, she's never been a minister, not even close, you know. Yeah. So they've got they've got 
major problems. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, and it's just funny. I, the other thing about it is, is that there's been plainly a movement has happened at this election. I think one of the most profound I've ever seen because it goes beyond just simply a policy switch. It goes beyond simply a uh, its time factor. The Labour Party barely got the seats it needed as a net gain to get into, into government. The big shifts have come essentially off-Broadway in all these other seats that don't determine government in a direct sense, but it has come from those professional women, the centres. You know, we used to talk about doctors' wives in, the, in those Liberal Party seats. We don't talk about doctors' wives. It's doctors. It's just that they happen to be women. Mm. So it's a professional women. There is a sense that that kind of nasty culture war stuff, beating up on transgender kids, all that sort of stuff, is really now has to head to the dustbin because the population has moved beyond all of that. And so how does the Liberal Party reform itself socially, you know, keeping true to its conservative roots, but not lose touch completely with what is the mood in the, in the suburbs? Uh, look, my, 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 okay, what, my problem with the Liberal Party is that I think, I, I think what the Liberal Party needs to be ideologically is the following. I think it needs to have a much stronger economic reformist bent to it, an ideological set of convictions on that front. In a sense, what I'm just describing is what is, is the way that I used to once consider myself a liberal, but no longer do, because they don't do anything like what I'm about to describe. I think they need to be have an ideological view around economic liberalism, but with a social conscience, because I think you have to accept that the zeitgeist of what Australia is and is continuing to become embraces a larger government role rather than a smaller government role. And so if you accept that, then you have to find ways to formulate your economic system to support that. And a large part of that, I think, therefore becomes taxing wealth rather than taxing income. And that would mean the Liberal Party needs, in a sense, it would help them in the teal seats because they can just ignore them. They care about taxing wealth rather than income. And that's how they support opportunity because you've already got that if you've got wealth, so it gets taxed to support the kind of socially liberal country that we all seem to want increasingly and which wealthy people claim they want. So let's test that by taxing their wealth. That's the first thing they need to do on the economy. You're not going to get back Wentworth or Higgins with two rack in it by saying we're going to tax your wealth higher. You're not. Well, maybe not. And then you are calling the hypocrisy of the people in those seats with what I'm about to get to, which is the other half of what the Liberals need to do. You then have to also embrace values-based social issues and moderate positioning on things like whatever it might be, you know, like you don't go as far because you've got socially conservatives in your ranks. So you don't have to have the debate around too many of those things where conscience votes can be had, right? But you do need to have a more consistently opportunity-based view on social issues as well. And that's the moderate, if you like, donning of the hat to the moderate side of the party. But then you have to somehow also accommodate that you have this national party that sits separate to you but in coalition to you. And you've got to, if you believe in values-based politics and if you believe in cleaning up the system, you can't just pork barrel your way towards a decent coalition relationship with them anymore. You have to find other ways that you can get along with them. And if you have a taxing of wealth rather than income attitude, that's also going to hurt the relationship with the nationals, by the way, because wealth is a cornerstone of, of a lot of people in the regions who aren't the poorer people in the regions, right? So it's, 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 it's a wicked problem. But I think that's the only way it all starts with the Liberal Party embracing its economic ideological convictions. But you know what, Hugh? 
they don't do that anymore. If I look at the Parliamentary Liberal Party, most of them either don't believe what I'm talking about or violently, violently is the wrong word, strongly oppose the sort of moderate stuff that I'm talking about, or they just don't get it, even if they even if they tried. You know, there's just no interest in economic ideological reform these days. And that's a huge problem on the right of politics. And that's why it was left back in the early 80s to the Hawke-Keating government to go down that path, because the wets couldn't agree with the dries. The dries wanted to go too far. The wets didn't want to do any of it, and then throw in the nationals and it became a complete cluster you-know-what. So it's just a mess, right? We're sort of in the same spot now, but without the dries even in the damn parliament to sort of push the envelope on economic reform. So just before we go, two quick questions. What happens if boats start arriving? Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, If boats start arriving, then Labor just has a structural problem, doesn't it? Because even if they turned around and said, okay, we will support temporary protection visas and so on, the few things we don't support anymore, the, the few points of difference between the major parties, it would sort of suggest that Labor just, by definition, being in government, there's a view amongst people smugglers that you might as well have a crack because they're more compassionate. And that's, that would be a problem over time, I think, for Anthony Albanese. Which Dutton would certainly look to exploit, I'm sure. And just one other matter is the voice. I had a long chat with uh, Linda Burney yesterday, the, the incoming Indigenous Affairs Minister, first woman of First Nations woman in Cabinet, and also to uh, Professor Megan Davis, who's the uh, co-author, really, of the Statement from the Heart. And I'm a constitutional conservative. I think you've got to be careful about changes to the Constitution, but they, uh, they certainly convinced me on two things. One is this notion, which was put around from Turnbull and, uh, and also from Morrison, that this is about a third chamber in the parliament. It is not. As Megan Davis says, it is about a voice to parliament, not a voice in parliament. That satisfied my curiosity, concerns about that. And the other thing is, is the scope of the sorts of legislation that would have to run past the voice, because, of course, everything from childcare policy, aged care policy, tax policy, Deal, you know, is going to affect Indigenous Australians just as part of the general polity. So does every piece of legislation go through this other separate process, which might slow down legislation, complicate it, etc. The main focus is to do stuff which is covered by the race powers and the constitution and legislation, which is directed towards, fundamentally towards stuff which affects Indigenous people. I think that within the scope of that, if those are the arguments being made, I think this might be a constitutional change where the referendum does pass, and there have been all kinds of difficulties in getting referenda passed. What do you think? Yeah, look, referendums are very tough to pass. It'll all come down to how it's framed, firstly. But then secondly, it will come down to whether it does or doesn't have bipartisan support, won't it? That'll be an important factor. And that will be interesting to watch if you've got Peter Dutton leading the Liberal Party. He has since admitted he was wrong about this, but it shouldn't be forgotten that Peter Dutton did not attend the parliament when the parliament said sorry to Indigenous Australians shortly after Howard lost and Rudd won. We you know, remember that John Howard stubbornly refused to do a, a national apology to Indigenous Australians. Most Liberals acquiesced on the victory of Kevin Rudd, and certainly almost all of them attended the parliament with that now famous speech uh, with the apology that Kevin Rudd delivered shortly after winning in 07. Peter Dutton did not, and long stuck to the fact that he was right not to, and only pivoted on that when he became a leadership option when Malcolm Turnbull was fading. A long time after that, therefore. And possibly for strategic rather than actual moral conversion purposes. Yeah, look, potentially. So this, and this, I guess my point is, 
if he's prepared at that point to disagree with an apology on what was really a fig leaf argument that there could be legal consequences to the apology. I remember that was the argument that John Howard always ran. It could lead to all sorts of legal problems, which of course is rubbish and it has not done so. This, as a constitutional change, has more legs to the complexity of it, whether you agree or disagree with it, as, as potential unintended consequences, as just by definition, changing the constitution. I just wonder whether that has its own impact on Peter Dutton, given his past on issues like this. And that will make how it's constructed important as well. But ultimately, as I say, where he sits could become important to, to how it goes uh, in passing a referendum. It would be a devastating blow, wouldn't it, to reconciliation for it to get put to a referendum and fail. That would be you know, a sort of almost a worst case scenario in my view. Yes, and if that failure is, is blamed then on, on a Joyce Dutton coalition leadership, then it'd be interesting to see where that all landed. Uh, Labour is committed to bringing it on, even if there's no bipartisanship. So uh, yet another one we'll be watching. We're out of time, Peter. Kids to drop off at school. <laughs> Great to talk to you, though. We'll have another chat later this week. See you, Mark. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.